Good afternoon. Uh, in the Scottish political world, there was a, a, a figure that seemed for a while immovable. She was called Nicola Sturgeon. She's no longer in post. She's sitting in the back benches and her political career is over. Now, the reason for this um, may be to do with finances within the SNP. Uh, we haven't yet got any direct evidence of that. What we do have direct evidence of, and we saw it on our screens and it was spectacular, is the collapse of Nicola Sturgeon and her entire political narrative over the issue of gender, over the issue of what is a woman. And this was a question that she found herself unable to answer. We had the ridiculous sight of government ministers saying in order to uh, determine whether a male rapist uh, was in fact a woman, they would need either more information or expert advice or, or more education themselves because we can no longer know what a woman is. Now, the fall of Nicola Sturgeon and her inability to deal with this question uh, was brought about more than any other single, uh, by more than any other single group, by a grassroots group within Scotland uh, called For Women Scotland, who campaigned on this issue. Uh, and their success has been tremendous. Their courage has been considerable. And uh, we're uh, able to talk directly to one of their organisers today, uh, Susan Smith. Susan, welcome to UK Column. Thank you, it's great to be here. So if we can go back to the start of the story, um, when did you decide that becoming an activist and, 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 and coping with all that comes with that, police attention amongst other things, uh, when did you decide that was necessary and, and what was the kind of defining point that, that made you stand up and, and get involved? Um, I think I'm a bit of an accidental activist, um, and I think that's quite a common theme if you speak to a lot of women on this. Um, it was something that was being talked about in various groups online, on Facebook groups, or um, on, on Mumsnet, which has been known as the radicalisation portal for a lot of women. Um, and it was little things. It had started out being little things, things at school or um, things at work. And so women got together, as women often do, and started talking about things and saying, well, this can't be quite right. And why are we, what, what, while we're happy for people to live as they want to live, and we have great sympathy for people who feel um, that their bodies are not right for whatever reason, there's an issue here, there's a clash. And I think it was just a desire to have a conversation that a lot of women then went back to either their employers or their political parties and said, can we have a conversation about this? And everyone was met with a wall of stony silence. So the the really galvanizing thing for a lot of us was when the consultation started to happen. And the consultation started to happen in Scotland a bit earlier than the one in the rest of the UK. And there was an initial one that passed almost without notice. And it was after that one closed that um, a group of women in Scotland decided to come together and form the organisation that we now have as For Women Scotland because we felt that there was still room to fight this and we needed to keep on fighting it. 
the issue of the mainstream parties not having any dialogue is one I've come on before. They expect their supporters, their activists, to fall into line with whatever the policy happens to be. But there doesn't actually seem to be, uh, certainly not in Scotland, and as far as I can tell, it's pretty thin in the ground elsewhere too, any forum where if you think one of the political parties is going astray, that you can actually have a dialogue about this doesn't seem to be possible. Um, it's all about compliance. Now, the, one of the reasons that I, I, I was momentarily distracted there was the, uh, the comment you made about Mumsnet being a radicalisation portal. Now, I thought, I've got to check that because that's got the sound of something that, that actually has been said before. And sure enough, um, a journalist called Katie Baker uh, published an article called Mumsnet and the Fostering of Anti-Trans Radicalisation. Uh, that was the subtitle. The main title was The Road to Turfdom. Right, a, a, a skit on uh, F.A. Halleck's great work, The Road to Serfdom. Um, and that was obviously a, a, a major, um, a, a, a major uh, publication and work in the uh, freedom-loving, small government uh, endorsing right wing of the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. Um, so this was an anti-state quite a radical agenda in, in, a, in a road to serfdom, a warning by Hayek about what big government could bring. Uh, so it's interesting that they drew that parallel. But also, uh, just fascinating that Mumsnet uh, has been characterised in this way. And this gets to a, the core of what, um, if you want to call it kind of um, normal normal female opinion, normally, normal, the viewpoint of normal women in our society is, has been painted as um, radical, as toxic, as problematic, that your belief system, the belief system that most women had for most of history is suddenly no longer acceptable. Um, so just before we go into the, the detail of this, could you say a little more about what it was like to try and to try and be heard, actually try and have a conversation about any of these issues with with the with the mainstream, either the press or the political machine? It was really odd because what it seemed as though was that all the things that people had believed in 10, 15, 20 years ago suddenly were beyond the pale. And um I I'm not somebody who ever had extreme views on on um, sex and gender. Um, as I say, I was always pretty relaxed about it until we got to the point where people were saying that um, a simple declaration of a change of gender was enough for somebody to come into a women's changing room or a rape crisis centre. And I thought, well, that can't be right. And that's not what we were talking about 10 years ago. So. I think a lot of us just wanted to go back and check. So we just went back to the political party or the employer or somebody and said, hang on a second, you know, I know you want to provide for this person, but can you have a care for some of the women who might not be comfortable with this? And um, at that point, you realised that you were now a, the worst of the worst. You were a bigot. 
and there was no way you could go. You couldn't actually have this conversation with people. They they just said you needed to educate yourself, that you were judging people who were vulnerable. And all these things, these really <laughs> surprising things from people who often themselves were probably people who would have been far more reactionary. Well, I, I think they are still more reactionary than I am. They've just swung the other way. So some of them would have been people who back in the day would have had no toleration for gender nonconformity or no toleration for different sexualities. And now they've completely swung the other way. And now they have no toleration for anybody who doesn't agree with that. So um, it's an object lesson as well in how effective um, policy capture can be and how effective a very small group of people can be in going in somewhere and getting a message accepted and changing changing um, public policy without ever changing public opinion, which is also fascinating that they have met they managed to change public policy and then turn around to the public and say well your opinion is now wrong and wicked and people were too scared for for a long time to push back on that um and it's only because the women's organizations have had this success that now people are able to say well this is this is nonsense obviously nobody believes this but a few years ago i think people would still very scared to say what they actually did believe because the pendulum had swung without anybody actually realizing what was going on. Yes, this is this is a problem of the, the long march through the institutions. The institutions are captured and it happens in secret. The public's not made aware of this until everything's in place and the activists are ready to push the agenda and, and coerce everyone because it's, it's not about, at this point, it's not about persuading. It's about power. It's about bullying. It's about forcing people to be silent and to do things and say things that they 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 know they know is wrong. They know in the heart is 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 without foundation, or is a lie, which is a, a very strange thing to behold. Um, I, when pushing back against this, which I personally started to do, probably oh uh, maybe about twenty. 2010, 2011, something like this, uh, you'll start going on Twitter and you start discovering what the what pressures are being applied to silence silence you. And this is this requires a bit of thought about what what's going on here. What are we up against? Um, I've been called all these words. Are they are they valid? Are, 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 you know, people are saying bigot and all the rest of it. Um, you know, where's that coming from? And a bit of research and a bit of thought reveals where it's coming from and and how to fight it but it's it's very difficult when you first come across it because people aren't looking for this they're just going in there they're having a normal exchange and they're putting forward views they think are entirely mainstream and all of a sudden they're getting this response i find i find it particularly sad when you look at people who are maybe formerly of the radical left um and who don't buy the idea that men can go into women's changing rooms uh, because they choose to, um, and don't buy into all of this. Um, people like Caroline Stock, who is a uh, you know very much a person of the left, and was attacked horrendously and mercilessly uh, over her stance. I think it's harder for these people who are not used to being attacked from that direction. Um, 
and and for people who are coming from a very much a, a, a moderate uh, middle of the road position who and who are not used to being attacked as radicals and, and dangerous extremists. So to actually handle that sort of pressure, it must have been very strange. I mean, how did you cope with this on a personal basis, the, the mudslinging, the name calling that comes with standing up against this ideology? Yeah, it was weird and it was it was very hard because as you say, it tended to be people who previously had been your fellow travellers. Um I I said that I was never used to being on what might have been called the wrong side of an argument from the perspective of people who maybe considered themselves more progressive and um more socially aware. And 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 so you do then have this enormous pressure because when you're being told by people who are on your side, in theory, that your views are wrong and wicked, you want an explanation for that. And I think for me, it was the fact that I wasn't getting the explanation. Um, and I have always believed that in debate, I was... Um, when I was younger, I had a very argumentative grandfather who was nominally a communist, but um, would argue anything and liked to argue for the sake of it. So I learned how to make a case and have an argument. And then he would, he was, he was incredible. He'd go away and take your arguments and use them on somebody else. Um, so it was, to me, there was an intellectual element to that process. But that was how you arrive at a conclusion. You moderate your views, you have the conversation, you have the argument, and then you say, okay, that, that's tested part of my belief structure. So now I need to think about how I can refocus and what else I need to take on board. And this wasn't happening. And so any question you came up with, any, I, I had been involved in a con ridiculous conversation with um, a, a group, a political group, and there was a woman who um, was a rugby coach and she had said it is dangerous to put male people in with women on a rugby team, which, you know, is not controversial, it's common sense. And the pushback from some of these, and it was especially men but there was also a group of young women as well who just said but you can't say that you mustn't say that you're not allowed to say that and then you start to say well why on what basis are you making this argument what's your scientific evidence and in the end it it did as you said just end up being name calling and at that point i suppose I, I i tend to try and avoid conflict but i do have a little bit of an awkward bugger streak in me um, that meant when I was when I was younger I would go and find people in the playground to stick up for if I felt that people were being thoroughly unreasonable so I do have some of that awkward <laughs> awkward spirit in me and I thought actually no if all these people have his name calling that's not good enough and I think that when I'd started to have these conversations and with other feminists and looking at groups and People were talking about starting up groups. Um, and I I thought, well, somebody's going to do this. Somebody better qualified, somebody more in touch, some somebody who's got a bit more of a track record on campaigning 
one of these people are going to take it on. Somebody's going to do this. And when nobody steps up, I think you get to the point, if you know that something's right, um, or, or certainly this is this is how I feel, if I know that something's right, I feel that I have to step up. If nobody else is going to do it, I might not be the best person to do it, but somebody's got to do it. This brings us to, you know, the, 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 the campaign and 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 how you went about this. Now, firstly, you did have a slogan as a hashtag, which which I thought was wonderful, right? It was it was women won't wished. For those of you outside of Scotland, uh wished is a is a is a Scots term mean, meaning be silent. And of course, your silence, your silent acquiescence was what was being demanded, not not too gently either. Um, and uh, I thought this was a, a wonderful, um, uh, a wonderful uh, a, a hashtag, a wonderful summary of your position, because it, it did rather suggest that some of the um, negative views of women from the past, right, that that uh, women weren't might might not have had their their um, their opinions valued as they, they should have had, um, weren't given the prominence and weren't listened to to the degree that they should have been. Right? Now that may or may not be tr- true of the past, but it is certainly the it's certainly the perception of the past. Um, we're in fact coming back again, and it was taking this item of this this tag of of, of silencing women, of bullying women, of of coercing silence from, from an unwilling human being and putting it on this group who were pre, who were presenting themselves as the ultimate in caring, the ultimate in virtuous, the ultimate in um, in in uh, far-sighted and and liberal, and saying no 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 you're not liberal you're you're as you said reactionary you're trying to take us backwards you're trying to to ignore us once again, and we're not for this. And I thought it was a, it, I thought it was a wonderful hashtag. Really got to the the, the, the heart of the matter in in three words. Uh, could you take us through sort of the early part of the campaign? You know, what did you do, uh, and what was the reaction? Well, so that um, hashtag actually, and this is, I think this is a lovely example of how organic this has been. Um, that was um, a lady who's anonymous, anonymous on um, Twitter. She has very deeply personal reasons for um, resisting this to do with a family member. And um, she came up with it. And it tied rather beautifully into another campaign that had, another, that had started at that time, which was a lot of women were going around leaving um, messages on slates, chalked messages tying ribbons, putting these slates on, just a, a line, a quote, and coloured ribbons. And um, it was a very gentle campaign, um, and it provoked the most extreme reactions in a lot of people who were hugely indignant that women were <laughs> tying ribbons and using arts and crafts to make a political point. And so... That all dovetail very nicely with the Women Won't Wished um, campaign. And, of course, it has that beautiful alliteration and it did go completely, completely global, I think. Um, 
And so it became something of a, a rallying call. And because of the timing as well, because it was coming in when all these debates in Scotland were getting very, very heated, um, we were taking the Scottish government to court over the, um, the, the public boards. And as you say, it feeds back into this narrative of keeping women in their place. And one of the more depressing things um, over this period has been how many people still hold on to prejudices that I thought were things of the past and how many of those people would consider themselves the good guys. Um, people who are very, very swift to demonize, especially older women, um, and, and will openly say things like, oh, you're, you're an old bigot, so why? And some of the most horribly misogynistic language about older women that I've seen. Um, and of course, you know, the comeback to those people is that one day they're going to be old and we hope that they won't encounter the kind of horrific prejudice that um, sadly still seems to exist. But it, it, I think it was, um, I think it was beautifully, it was just, it was just a perfect phrase. It was a beautifully expressed phrase, a perfect phrase. And we took it, obviously it became a big rallying cry at all of our demos. We had several demos outside parliament, um, lots of chanting of it. Um, we had um, the last probably really big one would have been um, just before they, they had the final debate on the um, GRR bill, but there'd been several before that. And um, it's, it's been wonderful because it has been, it's been such an affirmative message and so many women have found their voice. And I think so many women who ordinarily would not be wanting to speak up have found their voice and have been taking on campaigning and going to different parts of the country and speaking up and organizing meetings. Um, so it's, it's a really positive, it's a really positive message. I remember seeing a, a documentary once about Hall, Holloway Prison, women's prison, and it had many organisational problems and, and um, there was behavioural problems. And this, a lot of this is stemmed from its, its, its reconstruction. And they were interviewing a very experienced uh, Scottish women, woman um, prison officer who was explaining what was going wrong. And uh, she said, well, she was talking about the, the, the isolation that the building physically caused for the women. And she said, it's, it's totally different running a women's prison than running a male prison. Because if a male prisoner kicks off, you put him in solitary and he calms down. If a woman prisoner kicks off, you put her in with another woman prisoner and they talk and they calm down. If you put her in solitary, she gets worse. She goes, women are not the same as men. Um, and... I think one of the other things that was beautiful about the women won't wished is it, it, all human beings have a realization that the way women communicate and the way men communicate is different, and and women um, will talk to one another and find a great deal of benefit from doing so, and um, to to 
force them to be silent is to force them to do something that is against their nature. And there's, there's something unnatural about saying the opposite the women must wished. And, I, and I, I think it also pointed at the unnatural nature of the legislation that was being foisted on our country. You know, a little bit of that came out from, uh, from the slogan as well. Um, so yes, be beautifully judged. Now, when you started, I mean, I was at that, uh, the, 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 uh, the last um, demonstration outside Parliament you uh, describe, and this was, a, a, I think, a wonderful moment because you had all of these different groups. You had groups that were campaigning against the sexualisation of children and the education issues. Uh, you had some uh, smaller political groups like the Scottish Family Party. Uh, you had uh, uh, the Women for Scotland and all of the campaigners against the GRR bill, Gender Recognition Reform uh, Bill. And all of these people who had who were very different and had very different moral views. You had Christians, you had feminists, you had all sorts of different people with different views of the world. And they all came together and they kind of united that day. And they said, look, we're here to protect the women and the children of this country from what is happening inside the parliament. And I, th I thought the clarity that came out of that was was really striking. And a, and a moment where I felt, no, something is something is shifting here. You could feel the change happening sort of on that day. Um, it, if you could uh, take us through some of the your other experiences of campaigning. I know, for example, recently there's been, you've had some difficulty in, in Aberdeen. I remember one of the other um, demonstrations, I wasn't at it, but I, I, I saw video where a very large man in a frock uh, was was charging forward and, and getting in the face of a very small woman and, and, and repeatedly shouting the word witch at her. It was very aggressive. It was um, full of anger and a kind of uh, uncontrolled rage that, that did suggest that if the police weren't there, something bad might have happened. It, it, is that type of reaction uh, from the campaigners in favour of gender reform and, and gender fluidity, essentially. Uh, is, is that something you've had to face a lot? Yes. Um, and obviously it served, it served a purpose for them for a while because there were a lot of women who were very scared, especially in the early days, to come to a meeting. The first, um, the first meetings that happened in Scotland around this um, were probably, I, th I think they were the beginning of 2018. There was one in Edinburgh and one in Glasgow. And at the Glasgow one, an individual who is uh, pretty notorious these days for um, his involvement in this, this movement, um, interrupted the meeting and was shouting out, had managed to get inside. Um, and then I think at the Edinburgh one, there was a group supported by an organisation that claims to be a feminist organisation, but they had turned up explicitly to make a noise, try to disrupt. They'd got masks on. They were very frightening looking, big dogs. And um, they were shouting during a speech that was given by um, somebody who'd um, suffered from child sexual abuse. And they were asked 
if they could stop because this was somebody, you know, that deserves to be heard, irrespective of views on a, a particular topic. That is somebody who was speaking a great sort of personal um, personal difficulty. It was, a, it was a difficult thing for her to do. Um, and they did not respect it, which I think was when a lot of people realised that these individuals were not there because they care about people who are vulnerable. They were there because they care about power and they were exercising power in this situation, the power to tell women, as you've said before, to be silent, to shut up, to not talk about things, to stay in their place. Um, it's got better, um, but the first meeting we had under the Four Women Scotland brand name, because these other meetings had been held by other groups before Four Women Scotland was founded, um, that was in January of 2019. And the hotel that we had the meeting at was absolutely swamped by phone calls, um, emails, again, organized by a group that claims to be feminist and by a bookshop in Edinburgh. And they rang this venue and basically threatened them. And so the, the meeting couldn't go ahead unless we got a lot more security. We had no money at this point. We, we'd only just started. We had no money. We had only, I think, Marion had put the meeting on her own credit card. And um, we were either faced with we had to cancel it or we had to commit to spending hundreds of pounds that we didn't have on extra security. So we took the risk. We got the security. <laughs> Uh, we went ahead with the meeting, which was a great success. And then we put out a message the next day asking for help. And the response was incredible. But, um, and, and it, it was written up in the papers. So we got, pu we got publicity out of it. And I think it reinforced the fact that you have to stand your ground and you have to stare them down. Um, but yes, that some of them are frightening and some of them have been violent. And there are individuals who are potentially very frightening. We had um, we have, have had to report a couple of people to the police. Um, one was charged um, for threatening us. And what is particularly galling is that the organisations that supported this person, because they were due to be performing a Trans Pride and the organization supporting Trans Pride that year, the organizations who are supposed to campaign, who campaign for um, trans rights refused to, to condemn this. They refused to say that this wasn't something that was acceptable. Now, if, if there were women running around threatening to <laughs> blow up um, these organizations, we would have something to say about that. Uh, you know, uh, we would have something to say about anyone threatening violence. But unfortunately, organisations funded by the Scottish government apparently cannot condemn violence. Um, and later on, there was a, a meeting that was very hard to arrange um, at Edinburgh University. And actually, it wasn't even particularly on this subject. It touched on it, but it was largely about um, violence against women and why protections are needed in society. 
and Julie Bendel, um, the, the the feminist journalist and campaigner, had come up to speak, and she was talking about um, prostitution and violence against women. So all of her speech was just about just about women, women's rights, people being violent to women. And as she exited that meeting, um, an individual, so six foot two, beard, um, but I believe wearing a skirt, ran up and tried to punch her and was only pre- prevented because there were three um, security um, guards there and managed to pull him off. And when she reported it afterwards, she said, that she saw this man try to punch her. And the response from certain sections of the liberal press was, how dare you call that person a man? Not how dare that person try and hit a woman, but how dare you call that person a man? So, yes, quite, I think it's got, do you know, it's hugely counterproductive, right? It's a terribly counterproductive thing to do. And the more sensible people will realise it. But it doesn't stop it. We had, um, saw the, the placards recently, earlier this year, with decapitate turfs on them. Uh, Julie Marshall, who is part of um, an organisation, in a, a sort of local group in Glasgow, they're organising little meetings under the Women Won't Wish banner. Um, they're fully autonomous little groups, and she was um, the person who was attacked in Aberdeen. So they are still they are still doing it, and they feel justified because they are spinning a narrative. Some people are cynically and dangerously spinning a narrative that people want them dead, that people want to hurt them, that they want to eradicate them, and it's all nonsense. But you have to believe this, I suppose, in order to justify being violent towards a group of ordinary women. This has been building for some time, of course. Um, we saw this back in 2017 uh, under, the, under the phrase punch a Nazi, right? Or the, the suggestion was, well, it's okay. It, violence is okay if it's a Nazi, you know, which, of course, then begs the question, well, how do you define Nazi? And it, it was, of course, the person I happened to be punching at the moment. I mean, that that really was the only definition. Um, and then this phrase was would be used to, um, to essentially demonise people and make them subject to violence. So it was a label that was applied to people who didn't have the correct political opinions in order to dehumanise them. Dehumanisation is always the first step towards violence, sometimes very extreme violence. Um, One of the other aspects of this is, of course, the idea that silence is violence, right? This is obviously not true, but uh, it was the claim that if you, not only if, if, if you oppose the trans rights activists, but if you simply fail to adequately support their viewpoint, that is also violence. So this justifies essentially any amount of violence on their part under the banner of self-defence. Now, this narrative, crazy though it is, you're quite right, it's been, we've seen it um, playing out quite often, including um, uh, signs with a guillotine illustrated on them, uh, calling for decapitation of what's called TERFs, which stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist, which is the slur, the made-up slur word 
um, for feminists who do not buy into the trans ideology. Um, being held up at a rally in Glasgow, attended by many cabinet ministers and MSPs and, you know, all of the, uh, the great and the so-called good of, of the Scottish political scene. And this was okay, apparently. Um, and for a while, this was getting, I mean, it's still getting tolerated. But as, as essentially the majority of the population have, have found the courage to push back against the ideology and to point out the harm that, that it does and to point out the, the nasty, aggressive nature of things. Um, and they have done that because of people like yourselves have taken the lead and been first uh, to oppose it. As, as the ideology has got more resistance um, coming from the population at large, it's no longer being accepted. It's no longer being acceptable. Um, there was the recent case down in London where a trans right activist, a very violent man who had a horrendous um, background of, of violent conduct and um, the, the, the prison sentence that goes with it, um, stood up in a frock and uh, called on people to, to punch a turf. Uh, he was arrested by the Metropolitan Police, but he he got let off essentially by the courts because this was somehow, I think it was, I think his defence was he was simply advertising and trying to get attention. So there's still failure to protect people from this sort of aggression, aggressive conduct. Um, but the population is certainly pushing back and is, is becoming more aware of the risks and more and more people are, are able to speak able and willing to speak out. And this, is, this has been in no small part because of your campaign. Now, another high point of the campaign was when uh, Kelly J. Keane, Posey Parker, came to Glasgow. Now, I went along to that one as well. There was quite a large counter-demonstration. The usual suspects were all there. Um, and a much larger demonstration by Posey Parker and the the mostly female audience, quite a few men there, but mostly female audience, that was along to hear what was being said. And the, the, the theme of the meeting was let women speak. And um, it, was a, it was a huge rally, it was in Glasgow Square. It was very enthusiastic. There, there was a feeling of, um, of, of an idea whose time had come about the whole thing. And I was particularly struck by the speeches because this was essentially open mic and uh, various women got up to say, you know, they, what their viewpoint was or what their story was. And the, the quality of the speeches, the, the variety and importance of the ideas that were being discussed was really striking. It was absolutely first class. Um, I was particularly, uh, I, I particularly remember one uh, one. A girl who had lived for some time as a male and had been convinced that um, she was born in the wrong body, the whole thing, and uh, she convinced to essentially view her own biology as a mistake, as, as toxic, as harmful uh, to her. And when she decided that she didn't want to live this any, in this way anymore, she wanted to be who she was, she wanted to be a woman and she was content with that, uh, 
She described how all of her friends from the gay and trans community dropped her. She was left completely alone. So here you got someone who's vulnerable. Here you got someone who's taken into community who are saying, we love you no matter what you are. You be what you want to be, you be your genuine self and we will love you unconditionally. And the minute she said, yeah, I'm a girl, they were gone and they left her completely alone. And she was describing very vividly what this was like. Um, you know, that was, that was one of many speeches. And I thought the Posey Parker event was excellent. It was another milestone on the way to Nicola Sturgeon no longer being uh, in charge in Scotland. Um, there were signs held up at the time. Um, Posey Parker and Kelly J. Keane had, had become famous in part for, for defining a woman as an adult human female and putting on a big billboard. And people objected to this as hate speech. So this was extremely effective advertising. Well, there was a, a variation on this. Uh, people were walking around with T-shirts and signs saying, Nicola Sturgeon, noun. And the definition was destroyer of women's rights. Um, so it was it was hard hitting. It was it was honest. It was it was a lot of uh, sincerely felt views put forward. Uh, were you in George Square that day? Um, no, I wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, that's massive failure on my part. Um, but I know um, my my colleagues were, um, and obviously you know, that that's very much Kelly's. Thing and she does it brilliantly. So we do slightly different. We all, we all have. I think we all find our own little niche within this because there are quite a few women's organisations, and and it's great because we try to complement and work alongside. And so I know um, there were there were women there, and I think I I know who you're referring to um, doing the speech. And I think it's been a really important. Um, exercise that allowing ordinary people to have this voice has been hugely effective um and that's something that um the women um as we were talking about the event where um julie was attacked that's something that those women have taken to doing um doing a sort of open mic event on a more um local pared down level because obviously Kelly's events are now huge and she gets massive crowds because so many people are now aware of that campaign so there are now little spin-offs so now it's not just the big events there are little spin-offs and people are going and doing them all around the country which is which is brilliant um and you're right the the poster was a it was an inspired an absolutely inspired piece of um marketing propaganda campaigning call it what you want because um you know had that poster just been left up nobody would have seen it nobody would have noticed the fact is that people objected to it and there was another one um which um we took photos of that um again was organized by kelly in edinburgh waverley um for jk rowling's birthday a few years ago um, just a picture of I with a big heart, heart JK Rowling, like the I heart New York, you know, I heart NYC. Um, and again, there is nothing, there was nothing to object to in that poster. That's just a celebration of a woman who's a writer in Edinburgh. She's, 
um, who brought joy to lots of children. But of course, some people could not see that without immediately making a fuss about it. So then it's in the newspapers. So it's an incredibly, actually, the cancel culture in some ways um, often ends up streisanding the thing they're trying to cancel, that it's a, it's an, sometimes an incredibly effective way of getting that message out. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I was sorry that I missed the, um, the George Square event because it does sound marvellous. And I think as you picked up, the, the people who are being hurt by this and who often do not have a voice are the detransitioners. And so events like that give them a voice. But it's really tough because they shouldn't have to be rehearsing over and over again some of these really devastating stories. And they are devastating. And um, and you're right, the way that they are loved bombed, um, they're brought in, you do this, we'll all love you, you're the, your authentic self, and then they're dropped. It's very it's very much like a cult. <laughs> it, it has all the hallmarks of um, being, you know, you, you, you're good as long as you go along with the cult. And, but if the moment you step out of line, your friends won't speak to you ever again. So it's, it's awful. Um, and it is young and vulnerable people who are being suckered into this because they are being given a reason for feeling maybe that they don't fit in or a reason for feeling depression or a reason for having a, a difficult relationship with their body or with their family. And they're being given all of the, this as, they, as the one, one thing hears all. And of course, it doesn't. Um, and it can leave people with a, a lot more problems. And it's, you know, I think I think this thing will pass, but that is the thing that concerns me the most, that it will pass, but there will be a lot of people who have been really badly hurt by it in the process. Yes, the, the, the saddest sight uh, from George Square that day was a young girl who was in the counter-protest. Um, uh, she ran up towards the, the, the crowd surrounding uh, Kelly J. Keane and she lifted up her shirt to reveal her mastectomy scars and she was shouting in a, um, a, um, a very uncontrolled way, um, a very angry, rage-filled way. Uh, over and over she was shouting, I'm happy, I'm happy. And, and I really felt for that girl because she's got a she's got a a very difficult life ahead of her and, and until she finds a way out of, of the place she's she's in and rather than surgery you're seeing people who need someone to talk to and it's 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 a very sad sight to behold and you're right there, there will be many people harmed and most of them will be people who are convinced by by the narrative convinced by the cult uh, and and who go along with it and who then find themselves having to deal with the consequences, the physical consequences, the emotional consequences of um, what they've they've done to themselves, and, and this will will have a will have a lot of problems with that for many years to come. Um, now, your your campaign was 
hugely successful. Um, and it had, although I don't think you were exactly calling for Nicola Sturgeon to resign as a major or as the major plank um, of, of your campaign, it, it, it certainly became focused on the SNP and particularly on Nicola Sturgeon, who is the SNP or was at that point. Um, and the pressure mounted on her and mounted and very quickly she crumbled and then she announced that she, that, that she was resigning. Um, this, was a, this was a point of, of deep joy for many in Scotland who had seen the harm she'd done. And not just uh, harm she'd done to women, but harm she'd done to the whole society, to the whole nation. So there was a, there was a lot of, of just happy people. I mean, she brought so much happiness to the country that day. She's never done anything like it. Um, could you just could you describe how you reacted to all of those to that to that victory, to her departure, um, and, and what happened around about that time to uh, to your campaign and your colleagues? I don't think we can take all the credit because I think there were other things going on with the uh, SNP, and you know possibly a police visit or two might have been um, instrumental as well, but. Um, yeah, you know, when we when we set out to do this, all we wanted was for political leaders, including Nicola Sturgeon, to sit down with us and explain what it was they thought they were doing. And we wanted to put forward why we thought they got some things wrong and how potentially we could mend it. That was all we wanted. And we wrote many, many times to Nicola Sturgeon. Um, and she refused to meet us. We ended up, we did have a meeting with Shirley Ann Somerville um, and we did have an online meeting with Shana Robertson, but she always steadfastly refused and she made her position very clear, I think during the time of the rather infamous broom cupboard appeal. Um, I don't know if you, you know what that was, but that was... Um, the occasion when um, some of the trans activists within the party had expressed horror and dismay about um, various things. I think it was around the time of the hate crime bill. And um, she took herself off to record a message to them begging them not to leave the party, which she'd never done to any of the women who had been threatened or bullied or harassed by activists. So she she nailed her colours very firmly to a mast. And I think at that point we knew that we weren't going to get anywhere. And that was obviously cemented when she then chose to say um, later on that our concerns were not valid. And for somebody who is so certain of her position, and this comes back to what I was saying about intellectual insecurity, she lacked the capacity or the intellectual ability to make that case to us. And she never even tried to. She never tried to with the women in her own party who she knew were opposed to this. And then and then she pretended to be surprised when, for example, Ash Reagan resigned. But Ash's concerns were very well known um, beyond the SNP. So the fact that the leader of the party did not know that um, either suggested she was completely out of touch or that she was so arrogant and so 
um, intent on imposing her own will, that she thought people wouldn't have the guts to stand by what they believed in. And she was proven wrong. Um, but, you know, I think what happened and what was so horribly entertaining, and I say horribly because it was a horrible scenario, um, but was obviously the appearance of Isla Bryson. Um, and nobody wants a double rapist to be necessary in order to make your case. But there was this hideous inevitability about that individual. Um, and I think then a lot of people saw, <laughs> made manifest the reality of what happens when you are not allowed to challenge anybody's gender identity. And um, for me, the really key point in that was not just that this person was a, a double rapist, but that in the period since, the, since he was charged and convicted, he had been going to a college with a lot of young girls and, getting, and helping them with spray tan when they were in their underwear. And um, people said afterwards, oh, well, if they, you know, they, they should have known he'd been charged. But no, the fact is, you shouldn't have to know that somebody is a rapist or has been charged with rape to be able to say, I am not comfortable in this scenario. And I think that brought it home to a lot of people because actually, most people who commit sexual offences, we don't know. So it, 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 was, it was a perfect illustration of how terribly wrong self-ID can go. Um, and I think that the, the waffling and the indecision that obviously she, she, was, um, she came out with when she was put under pressure to answer, is this a woman, um, was so revealing. Because you cannot say everybody is valid and all that matters is somebody's personal identity unless it is that person. And only I, only I, as your first minister, have the ability to judge who is a valid person or who is not. And I think at that point, the sort of godlike edifice crumbled because you cannot be, you, safeguards and law do not work on the basis that one person might be able to judge other individuals. Um, and I think she was, she was found out that, that that intellectual inability to make the case at that point um, came through very clearly in a way that it probably hadn't up until then. So we were, we were delighted. It was, it was very exciting. It was a very exciting day um, when she went. Um, largely because she had been such a driver of it. She was so determined. Um, what became clear in the leadership campaign was that the, um, the party was pretty split between Hamza Youssef and the two female candidates, both of whom are opposed to GRR. So it was, it was a nice little illustration that this is not something that most people um, in the country or within a political party um, are, are, are wedded to. But it is, I think, a, a mark of the weak current leadership that they've decided that they have to maintain this be almost because it's Sturgeon's legacy.
but it's as you say it's, it was part of the legacy that destroyed her so it's it's a little bit like if margaret thatcher had gone and the conservative party had decided to hang on to the poll tax it's just stupid yes um the on the subject of just stupid uh, for about a week, we had three genders in Scotland. We had male, female and rapist, because when the press were asking government ministers, is Isla Bryson a man or a woman? You had Nicola Sturgeon and others saying, well, I, I know this, uh, they're a rapist. Can't even say he or she. Isla Bryson's a rapist. Okay, so that was, we had three genders for a little while, just for a week. Uh, I, as, as the narrative collapsed and uh, I mean one of our criticisms, one of my criticisms of Nicola Sturgeon for, for many years is her intellectual inability to think through any new problems. I think she's a follower, not a leader and she'd followed this gender ideology, she'd learned her line, she'd followed it faithfully and she hadn't the intellect to test it, to think it through and it was somewhat of a surprise that that was the issue that, that finally revealed the, the, the result of having someone without intellectual ability in the leadership position. Uh, but that's what, it, that's what it was. And yes, there was a lot of happy people. Um, I, I, could, I, could, I couldn't actually find the words on UK column. I showed a, a, a clip of Northern Ireland football fans singing Sweet Caroline because it's the most joyful thing I could find on the internet that particular day and and that kind of summed up how I felt it was just so good that that, that particular hurdle that particular evil um, leadership had, had gone and I, we knew we were going to get Hamza and it was going to be somewhat more of the same but the, to have that victory has um change things and that we'll never get to the point again where the view that a woman is an adult human female it can be painted any longer as hate speech i think that one's been defeated um i hope once and for all uh, so this brings us to i think the present day so where is your campaign at uh, what challenges uh, are you facing right now and and where do you see it going next so the um, first thing that's going to be happening very soon is the um, Scottish Government's challenge on the Section 35, um, because as, as I'm sure everybody will know, but just to set it out briefly, um, the GRR bill was passed um, at the end of last year, and um, the UK Government decided to intervene with an unprecedented Section 35 because they said that um, this bill would impact on equality legislation, which is reserved. And there's no question that it will. They were told that it would by the EHRC. Um, they've affected, um, surprised by this, but actually they, they, they were warned lots of times that there were UK-wide implications of having a different system north and south of the, the border of uh, Scotland and England. So they... The, um, this was blocked. The Scottish Government are now going to court to try to um, get this lifted. They are simultaneously, however, fighting us on an appeal over um, gender representation on public boards. We won a judicial review um, 
a while back over their definition of women in the Gender Representation on Public Boards Act, which they had put in as basically self-ID. And that was struck out. Um, the, the highest court of Scotland said that measures to help women, by definition, excluded people who are biologically male. The Scottish government then came back with revised guidelines, um, but they put back in people who had a GRC. Now, the Scottish, it, the, this is slightly technical, but the Scottish government's argument has been that getting a GRC changes nothing. So therefore, extending the GRR doesn't really change very much. It just allows you to change your birth certificate. And they, they, they were framing it as being able to get married or die as your true gender. But they were saying it didn't grant you any additional rights. But then they'd argued in this case, um, this recent JR, that we, we brought another JR, they'd argued that getting a GRC a gender recognition certificate to change your legal sex allowed you to take advantages of measures designed for the opposite sex. But only if you had a GRC. And if you didn't have a GRC, you couldn't take advantage of those measures. So they were effectively arguing that having a GRC changed somebody's legal status. And this, of course, then fed into the arguments for the UK government as to why extending the pool of people eligible for GRC would cause problems for UK-wide equality law. So they have two cases and they have to make actually diametrically opposed arguments in both of them, which will be very entertaining. Um, now, we think there are um, issues around equality legislation, even if we are right about the rights conferred by a GRC. There are, there are issues anyway. But um, the fact is that um, when we brought the JR about the, um, what, what a GRC does, we knew it was a little bit heads we win, tails you lose for the Scottish government because we knew that whatever the outcome of that case, it would affect what they were saying about the gender recognition um, bill. So they, they're slightly stuck. And the, the first case, the one against the um, UK government is September, and then ours is October. And so we will just have to see where that goes. Um, I imagine that it's the first stage for the UK government. I imagine if they lose or whoever loses, it will go all the way. It will keep going to appeal. So. Um, although the, a, a, an election could get in the way of that. Um, we are going to keep the pressure on politically as well. We have um, lots of conversations, I think, to have now with other political parties as well. Um, obviously, UK Labour has moved positions recently, which is great. Um, so there are lots of there are lots of groups throughout the UK who are interested in talking to them. We're obviously especially interested to have the conversation in Scotland, um, and we will continue to keep having these conversations and to keep trying to ensure that um, policy and practice reflect the law. Because a lot of the issue as well has been that um, the law actually isn't that 
there are some issues in law that need to be teased out and clarified, but many of the issues have come from policy getting ahead of the law. So there are areas within schools, within hospitals, within universities, where people are pretty much campaigning to have things set back to where they should be. And and those are the things that we are continuing to work on, that we hear from people every day about workplace scenarios, and um, just trying to ensure that the, there is the correct education out there, because for a very long time, lobby groups have been misrepresenting the law um, and they have been getting these policies into places like schools where it really shouldn't be. So we, there's a lot of work to do to reverse all that. It's been very striking in Scotland that uh, policy is, uh, for all practical purposes, law um, for the uh, public sector. And this is essentially due to the the control that in, that employment gives um, to the Scottish government over the very large part of the population that works for it, and who are in most cases very afraid of it, of the disciplinary process, of the potential for sacking. On if you're in a profession like teaching, which is almost all state-run, of maybe never working in your chosen profession again, uh, that comes from disobeying policy and this has resulted in uh, policy being treated uh, by the public sector as tantamount to law as essentially interchangeable with law to the point where I often wonder whether they actually appreciate there's a difference at all. Um, we saw this very much in the No to Name Person campaign and other successful campaign that significantly hold the SNP below the waterline and uh, that the, when they could no longer get anything through in terms of legislation, it became it became a, a creature entirely of policy, and it and it then morphed into many different things and many different smaller fights had to be won thereafter. Uh, so the idea that policy is is law for all all practical purposes in Scotland is, I think I think correct. Uh, and something that very much needs to be fought back against. So um, I, I wish you all success in that. Uh, just in closing now, would you, would you like to sum up um, or have any, any closing words or just sum up how you view this fight uh, from where you stand now um, and, and say any, any final words to our audience on, uh, uh, on its importance? Well, I think that... Um... No, in any society, if you do not value um, 51% of the population and you hold that their rights are somehow disposable or that their safety should is, is negligible, then something is going wrong. And we need to be able to have proper conversations about um, what that means. And we need to be able to have proper conversations about... Um, about about policy and about law without reversing all the time to name calling to simplistic slogans and we need to get out of echo chambers and bubbles and we need to stop being frightened to educate people we need to be able to have conversations and people need to be prepared to be challenged 
Um, I worry about people who feel that their view is the correct one and, and everybody else um, is, is either with them or against them. And there's been rather too much of that generally. So I think, you know, that there's, there's been a failure and it uh, comes back to an intellectual failure. There's been an intellectual failure on all levels of society and we need to start to think about how we can, can, can cope with that and how we can have the proper conversations. But I would also say that, you know, we're going to keep going um, and we're always, we're always happy to hear from people who have anything to add or anything to say or any help that they can give. Um, it's been longer than I thought it was <laughs> would be. Um, and I think we're still going to be keeping going for a while longer. And, um, you know, we, we, we will go on as long as needful, but um, it's, it's good to know that there's the support out there. Uh, Susan Smith uh, of Four Women Scotland, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, we'll continue to follow your campaigning and your work, um, and uh, we wish you uh, every success in that. Until next time, thank you very much for talking to us.